0: Have you ever had an idea that made you feel excited and intensely alive? Was the idea so wild that people closest to you laughed at it and told you to be realistic and stop dreaming? Then did you feel a little bit foolish, even guilty for even thinking about it? If you did, there's a good chance you swept it from your mind and never thought about it again. Actually, The idea never went away. It's buried somewhere deep within you, screaming to be born. You're not alone. You're one of the many people who suffer from Reardon syndrome. Hang around to discover exactly what Reardon syndrome is, if you have it, and how you can free yourself from it starting now. Today's guest is an expert on this deadly mind virus. He also knows how you can inoculate yourself against it. He appeared on this show in January 2019 in episode 164, and it's called You Are Your Story. Listen to it for major inspiration from a mega successful authentic man. He's an internationally respected and recognized prosperity mentor, an author who has written 12 books that have been translated into 25 languages, 13 and 14 will be out later this year, and a member of the Speaker's Hall of Fame who has spoken to more than 2 million people across more than 50 countries. He's a multimillionaire, a millionaire maker, and a person of influence. Why am I highlighting his accomplishments? Because he achieved everything that he has in spite of life's circumstances, not because of them. He reinvented himself, found fulfillment, created enormous wealth, and stepped into his highest potential by staring Reardon syndrome in the eyes and overcoming it. This former teenage alcoholic, high school dropout, crystal meth addict, and thief is today a brilliant, entertaining, articulate force for good. His words and ideas will give you the power to transform your life if you're willing to make the choice to do it. Get excited and open yourself to the energy of Mr. John Galt. John, welcome to Change Your Story, Change Your Life.
1: (laughs) Okay, that's quite an intro.
0: (laughs) And his name is really...
1: Well, it's a secret. We can't tell anyone. That's right.
0: Who is who is John Galt? That's right. we don't have to say. That's the essence of this. So, <laughs> in 1957, Anne Rand wrote a controversial novel, Atlas Shrugged. I believe it's very relevant today. The Centennial Edition has 1,168 pages. Can you summarize the central theme in Five words or less.
1: <laughs> that, that'd be interesting. Five words or less. Uh, Atlas shrug. Uh, man exists. Existence exists. I'm up to four already. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it's uh, to me. It is uh, what I'm did with that book is. She wrote, she created and sussed out a philosophy of living, mm-hmm. which she calls objectivism or called objectivism, because of course she's no longer with us. Uh, but she really, and why that book to me was, I still rank it number one in terms of the most influential book on my life. Mm-hmm. Because it was the first time for me that I understood that to really be happy and to be successful, I, was, I needed to live by a congruent philosophy,
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. which
1: I hadn't done to that point. And I think most people go to their graves and never do.
0: Unfortunately, I think you're right. Who are the novel's central characters?
1: Well, you've got uh, Fernan- Francisco, not Fernando, it's Francisco, right?
0: Francisco de Anconia. Yeah,
1: yeah. and you've got uh, Hank, of course, who you mentioned, Hank Reardon, and uh, Dagny Taggart, uh, the, the uh, rail magnet. Her brother, what's her brother's name? Jim. Jim. Yeah, I'm actually, uh, um, and of course, John Galt is the mysterious who is John Galt. Uh, it's been, uh, yeah, I read that book every year I'll reread it. It's probably been two years because mm-hmm. I've had a frantic 2019, 2020 so far. So it's been a while, but those, uh, you know, th- those are the uh, the players, I think, right? yes oh, my. Oh, those, my are the,
0: those are the main players right then there are some subsidiary players like Wesley mouch and uh um there's the the famous guy who writes the uh, this cryptic um uh, piece of music that um oh yeah yeah, yeah, and so who is rank <laughs> who is Hank Reardon? What role does he play in moving the story forward? And what does he stand for to you? Well,
1: he's, he's kind of a mixed character, I think, because he's this noble guy, noble meaning guy who wants to do well. He's, and, and I think Rand did something with him that not a lot of authors can do, especially the way she did it is um, show a true person, meaning uh, a flawed person, somebody who has great, a a hero who, you know, every every night you you see heroes and you see anti-heroes. You very seldom see a writer who has the discernment and the sophistication to create a character that isn't so clearly marked right that is uh we like to know okay uh uh uh, you know darth vader is the villain it's obvious he's the villain from the moment he walks on the scene uh obi-wan is the hero it's obvious he's going to be the hero uh i really nuanced her character. So Frank, you know, uh, Reardon was, he was in the marriage with his wife, but of course he was having an affair at the same time. His wife was a really superficial, uh, society type and, and Hank just wanted to do well and save the world. And he believed in hard work and free enterprise and, um, so there's a lot of conflicting things going on. He you know, he's got a lot of people in his family who count on him for everything, so they're always coming after him for money and favors and he kind of gets portrayed as a pretty cold, heartless guy because he he's brushing all these people off.
0: Yes. But he doesn't really want to save the world. He makes it very clear that his he he's unapologetic about the fact that he's interested in profit. That's his main, you know. He's, he's not interested in changing the world.
1: Yeah. So I'm curious. You uh, you set this up by uh, as Hank a weirdum weirdin syndrome. Yeah. How are you uh, How are you defining that? What What What, what do you see that as? Because I think that's a fascinating yeah. idea.
0: Well I I I actually I will answer that because I do have a very specific idea. I wanted to um to see if you had any input into what you think it might be yourself and then I'll I'll gladly if not I you want me to begin I'll gladly begin and you can either, Yeah, set the premise. I okay, think it's an
1: great. intriguing premise.
0: So it's for me it's found in a chapter in the book chapter 4 part 2 they call the sanction of the victim and essentially the the idea is this that Lillian, his wife constantly bombards him with reasons to feel guilty she treats him with contempt she denigrates him and she punishes him emotionally and the 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 syndrome to me is that she can only enslave him with his agreement. And here's a quote directly from the book. It's right on page, I think it's pages 464, 465. Her only tool was his own benevolence, his concern for her, his compassion. Her only power was the power of her own virtues. What if he chose to withdraw it so for me in a nutshell it's this the title of the the chapter the sanction of the victim that if i buy into the story that you're laying on me
1: the racket
0: that's right And I think that there's so much of that going on in different facets of the world right now. And it certainly goes on in people's personal lives, you know. And uh, it's brilliant because it's the difference between a person saying, I'm like this, or saying, I don't buy into this story, thank you for sharing but I'm writing my own story. It's that war. I
1: think I'm, I, it was this morning I sent out a tweet. If I remember the wording, I said, the oppressed and the oppressors are co-creators in decadence.
0: That's exactly the, <laughs> that's why we're talking.
1: <laughs> so I think that was, literally, and I, 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 no, it's just coincidence. I was, I didn't know where we were going in this conversation. Mm-hmm. That was just something, usually in the morning, I try to tweet out a couple of things to kind of, I'm just, I'm really doing it for myself. My followers think I'm doing it for them, but I'm really just doing it because I'm setting my mind straight for the day. And, uh, you know, the other person who, who actually uh, dug deep into this Probably uh, a couple of decades at least before Ayn Rand was uh, James Allen and As a Man Thinketh.
0: Yeah, yeah, and
1: yeah, yeah. he because he talks about oppressors in the book and because uh, he said, it, it, and I'm paraphrasing, so don't anybody you know beat me up on the internet because <laughs> I'm you know I'm just paraphrasing. Basically, he was saying uh, like slaves and masters are both ignorant. And everybody likes to say, uh, you know, let's hate the exploiters. But there's this new school of thought of people who are saying, well, let's hate the slaves because they allow themselves to happen to it. So, of course, when you have that kind of discussion you leave yourself open for attack Mm because then everybody's going to say, oh, you're just a heartless SOB. And don't you know, these people are victims and there you are, this Mm -hmm. rich white guy in your penthouse and you can't know what's happening into the little people and you have no heart and you have no empathy and you're just a evil, mean, despicable person. But, um, that's the superficial take. But if you really look at it, uh, That's, and like in the case with uh, Hank Reardon in the book, he's, and they're both, I mean, truly Hank and his wife, uh, Lillian, right? Yeah. yeah. They're co creators in decadence, right? Because he is very abusive toward her, just as she is very abusive toward him. It's, it is like the textbook toxic relationship. Uh, and there's a lot of that going on in the world today. And of course, Uh, in the middle of coronavirus, uh, lockdowns and quarantines and whatever. I think there's probably a lot of people in the world discovering. In fact, literally this morning, I was reading that um, in France, they have created some kind of a, a code for women to tell pharmacists if they're being abused at home. Uh, there's something when they refill a prescription. There's a I don't know if it's a word, a or number, or whatever, but there's some kind of code so that they can alert the authorities. And uh, they're taking some of these hotels that are uh, empty right now, and they're using them as shelters for women who were were stuck in quarantines with abusive people. Uh, yeah. yeah. And and you know, that I think a situation like we're in right now, at the time we're recording this that really uh, brings that to the surface in a relationship.
0: Absolutely. I mean, I I heard a statistic, not, I don't know the actual statistic, uh, the numbers, but they said there's been a a tremendous increase of abusiveness because now the people are forced to be together a lot. They can't get away. And the frustration, the fear, and they start taking it out on each other. And very often the man takes it out on the woman. Now, some listeners may be uh, thinking, well, Hank Reardon in the book is a powerful, rich industrial industrialist. He has nothing to do with me. How would you respond to that?
1: That's part of the memes, the mind viruses that people get infected with. Um, it was it kind of along the lines of what we're just talking. I saw... I don't remember if it was. Uh, I think it was Elon Musk when he delivered some ventilators to California, or uh, might have been the head of Apple who delivered a bunch of uh, N ninety five masks to you know California or whatever. So s- s- there was an, an article where the you know the person in the tweet said, "Wow, you know Elon just donated a thousand ventilators to whatever, or you know whatever." And the first comment, the very top one said, that's very nice, but what took you so long?
0: Yeah, of course, of course.
1: I mean, you talk about the thing that comes through in in Rand's book is the entitlement mentality that people get. And um, for you guys listening, uh, who is just Emphatically pointed at this one, since I said entitlement mentality. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's so prevalent today. And it's like, I, I wrote a blog post. Uh, actually, I've written about 10 blog posts about the pandemic and how we're mm. getting through it and what we need to do and things we could do better. And, so, and one of the things I'm, I'm telling people in there is stop counting other people's money. Yeah. Right. They're like, oh, my God, this X, Y, Z company, they laid off their 20,000 employees and they're not paying them. What all the money that that's really easy to count somebody else's money. But as an entrepreneur who's made payroll his entire life, I know how difficult that can be. And I know that there's and I have many entrepreneur friends who are, are facing this crisis right now. And they're sick, they're worried sick about how they can take care of their employees mm-hmm. because they can't bring their employees in, they can't put them to work, they have no income coming in, and it's bankrupting them. But to the outside, it's like, oh, and that's kind of how Hank Reardon was portrayed in the book, that, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, he's just this rich, industrial white guy. No, he's a guy who, who uh, to me, the real definition of prosperity is someone who solves problems and adds value Mm -hmm. and so while i agree with you that it isn't we don't have to say hank was trying to save the world but to me hank was doing a noble thing he was trying to be a responsible entrepreneur yes he wanted to create a profit and take care of his stakeholders and his employees and all that stuff that people think is evil mean and greedy But that's what makes the world go round is entrepreneurs who solve problems and add value. And um, so like it was, I think Hank's brother and then his wife and he just has all these uh, entitlement minded people who are just guilting guilting him all the time because he's wealthy.
0: Yeah, exactly. uh, Exactly.
1: That's a big underlying theme in the book.
0: Well, it's interesting. They're guilting him, but they're, certainly enjoying all of the fruits of his wealth. Absolutely. And um, now, when you think about it, can you identify specific behaviors that I would say are symptoms of this, let's call it Hank Reardon syndrome, in different kinds of people? Like, I just thought, how would an artist manifest that?
1: It's... It's so deeply seated on the principles that some really prevalent mind viruses. So one of the one of the most prevalent mind viruses in the world is "I'm not worthy." Uh, organized religion, a huge proponent of teaching that, right? Uh, so a lot of people have this "I'm not worthy" thing. So it's really easy. When, let's say you are an artist and, you know, most artists, where does this cliche of starving artist come from? Well, it comes from the fact that 99.876541% of artists are not very financially secure and they have a hard time making a living with their art, whether they're sculptors or painters or dancers or choreographers or writers or screenwriters or whatever. Uh, and so a, a part of that is they have that worthiness issue. So you know, I, I work with, I have a coaching program, and every now and then I'll get a, a, a true artist in it. And by true artist, I mean an artist who's not an entrepreneur because I consider artists entrepreneurs. Uh, I consider entrepreneurs artists, mm-hmm. but when I say a true artist, I mean an artist who just does art in the t- sense of sculptor writing, painting, whatever. So, uh, and they have the, the work I'm always doing with them is saying, okay, great. You know, I had a sculptor I worked with who did these amazing sculptures and, um, they were in, they are in town squares and office centers and, uh, wealthy corporations that sometimes, uh, hire him to put sculpture in their lobby or something. And, you know, my work with him was, okay, that's a great idea that sculpture you're going to sell for $5,000, but let's sell it for $50,000 because you have to think of the value you're actually creating and um, how marketable your skills are and how many of these you can produce. And you're not an assembly line and you can't just roll these out, you know, two dozen a month. So you have to get paid more for it. Uh, right. So it plays out in that way. Um, the, if you tell, I mean, how many artists tell their parents, uh, that they want to be a dancer slash sculpture slap sculptor slash whatever. And they get guilted by the parents because the parents raise them to be a doctor or to be an attorney or to be a whatever. um, you see that dynamic happening in places like that. Uh, that's not unlike the Reardon thing. So it's like, in Reardon's case, they use it like, see, you're a rich guy making money, and you're taking it from us at the expense of everyone else. And in the artist case, a lot of times it's the opposite. It's like you should be going out there and creating money and doing what society expects you to do to add value. And you're so selfish, you just want to live for your art. And I spent all this money and we sent you to college and we got you a degree because we wanted you to be a dentist like your father and your grandfather and your great-grandfather. And now you want to choreograph Hip-hop dancing? How dare you insult us like this? How dare you be so unappreciative of what we are doing for you?
0: You hit it right on the head. I'm an actor, and in my community of professional actors, film and television, I got to a point where I didn't want to hang out with a lot of them because... They, without meaning to be, their professional victims.
1: Yes, that's really, really prevalent in that space.
0: Because the, what we've allowed, see, the, again, the sanction of the victim.
1: Yes, it hasn't the been, sanction it, of the victim. It
0: hasn't been done to us, but we haven't stood up to those forces in the business of acting that say, "You look like this; so that's all you can play," and then eventually, when I or other actors buy into that. And they go, well, that's my type. You now right, have right, bought right. into the Hank Reardon syndrome because you're letting somebody else define for you. You're all you got In fact, American actors should start looking at French and European movies where the model of the leading man and leading woman, I mean, Gerard Depardieu. A leading- I was
1: just going to say Gerard. I was just going to say that.
0: Yeah, I mean, he would never have been a leading man in North America. He'd be, you know, uh, a supporting actor playing the goof, because he looks goofy. But in France, he's a sex symbol. Go figure. I did a movie with him. Well, I did a movie that he was in. Actually, my scene, my one scene was with Harvey Keitel, which was fun. But, Hmm. but, but Mr. Depardieu, he's quite a, he's quite a, you know, he's, he was quite a bad boy too. This guy is, yeah, yeah, he was. He was like, and, and he's so eccentric. He's like, wonderful. But anyway, I'm getting off topic. But the, it's a big problem in that community. And it is, I think that the heart of it, this syndrome, if you feel that you're not worthy and you have any thoughts that say, who am I to dot, 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 chances are you've got this, this virus and it's probably deadlier than Corona.
1: Yeah. It's, there's so many industries that are set up with this institutional bias, this institutional, just like there's institutional racism in society. Um, there's this institutional, like if you look at the acting industry is the perfect example. The music industry is the perfect example. The modeling industry is the perfect example. Um, a lot of the um, wellness disciplines, the massage therapists, right? The rolfers, the somatherapists, the the so many of the, the Reiki practitioners, the iridologists, the uh, acupuncturists, right? There's so many of those people who are struggling. And, ha- you know, I, I had a... Uh, uh, I've since moved from that area, but I had a... Uh, uh, he's a rolfer. Rolfing is this
0: deep, deep I
1: tissue. Do. Yeah, for people who don't know, it's this really painful deep tissue where they're separating muscle fascia and stuff. But it's for someone like me who went through four spinal surgeries and was trying to prolong my legendary in my own mind softball career. I really needed that. So I had that every week. And so the the guy I was going to was amazing. I mean, really a, a, somebody who really worked on his craft and uh, he charged $120 a session. And uh, I have another one, a guy in Miami who does it, who's amazing. He charges $300 a session. Um, is the guy in Miami two and a half times better than the guy in San Diego? No. The guy in San Diego is extraordinarily good. Um but so he, he, I came in once and he said, well, I have to tell you, you know, I had to raise my rates because, you know, expenses are going up and, you know, I'm sort we're going from $120 a session to $127 a session. I mean, can you imagine, right? That's just, that's like an institutionalized, which, I mean, you'd see that in 85 out of 100 people in that field or that profession, where that kind of lack consciousness, where they have a hard time articulating, and a lot of you listening right now, you're a freelancer, you're a coach or a consultant or a whatever, and you, know, you do graphic arts or you do PR or you do design work, and you have the same thing. You, you have a hard time articulating your value and demanding your worth. And in you know in the the earlier scenarios we were talking about where people are in abusive relationships or they're being have people playing rackets on them, it's the same thing. They're not standing up for their worth, their own value.
0: Absolutely, and it's really deep, and I and it's so deep. I think that that most people who don't won't address it. If you tell them, they're actually going to defend their own captivity
1: yes for sure it's- i mean even the abusive you know if, well, talk to any cop they'll tell you if they get a domestic violence call and they show up and they're going to arrest the abuser the person being abused is going to instantly defend the person they're trying to uh, arrest it's a, it's like a stockholm syndrome kind of thing almost um and same thing people First of all, because you buy into your story, right? So the story is, i got this cheap SOB boss. He never gives me a raise. He works so hard. I do all the work. He takes all the credit. So that's your story. Now you, you own that story, and now you've got to defend that story because you're you're getting your self worth. I mean, I got a new book. Won't be out till months, months from now. It's, I'm just wrapping it up. We don't even have and now we don't have a pub date even because of the mm. virus. Uh, but it's called Radical Rebirth.
0: Mm. And it'll
1: be out, you know, probably sometime in the fall. So I'm writing about this issue a lot in this book. Oh, there you go. There he's holding up my Mad Genius book for you guys who are listening. <laughs> You're supposed to say something so they know, hey, here's Randy's book, Mad Genius. You need to go out and buy it. <laughs> you I'm, can't just hold
0: it up. Well, no, I'm, I did it for a reason because <laughs> I know that you are not suffering from Hank Reardon syndrome so that you you would definitely promote it because it's a, it's a damn good book, A Manifesto for Entrepreneurs. And uh, in case you don't already recognize it from this talk so far. This man has a wicked sense of humor, so he's not only going to teach you, it's gonna make you laugh your ass off. So yeah, you'll you'll learn and laugh. Learn and laugh. That's it. It's a learning yeah, and-
1: So in this new book, the the radical rebirth one, I'm really going into this topic of identity.
0: Mm. Like
1: these you know, we were talking earlier about professional victims, right? So we create labels for ourselves. And my premise that I'm making in the book is that every time you assign a label to yourself, you're doing a voluntary lobotomy because you are uh, destroying, even though you're not technically destroying those brain cells, you're locking them up in a place you can't access them. So it's the same result as if you did get a lobotomy. So even if it, so when you say I'm a libertarian, or I'm a conservative, or I'm a liberal, even what you think is a good thing. If you say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Muslim, I'm a a climate change activist. Every time you assign a label to yourself, you're going to human nature, you're going to need to defend that label. Mm. So if you, uh, you're shopping around for a car and, um, you know, you go into Lexus and you start researching Lexus and just so happens there's a Lexus factory, uh, 20 miles from you. So you go to the factory and you get a tour and you just become enamored with that. So you buy a Lexus. Now you identify as a proud Lexus owner. And uh, you post it on Instagram and Facebook and you show everybody your new Lexus and your beaming. Now when your neighbor comes home three months from now and she's got a BMW and she's telling you about how great her BMW is, you can't help it. You, you feel like you need to point out the things your Lexus has. And even if she, her new BMW has 25 things that make it superior to your Lexus, you won't be able to see them. You won't be able to filter them because you won't be able to to see them because you filter uh, through the prism of, I'm a proud Lexus owner. So I cannot process... And you literally cannot process information that uh, conflicts with your identity. Mm -hmm. This is why you see... Uh, So many people, you know, Trump is the perfect example of it. The the people who hate him so much that they have Trump derangement syndrome and the people who uh, uh, adore him so much, they cannot see his lies and deceit and all of that stuff, right? Both of them are equally disturbed. Both of them equally have, whether it's the MAGA people or the liberals, both have such filters on that they cannot process information that doesn't uh, agree with their confirmation bias of the situation. In this case, President Trump.
0: Totally agree. Totally agree. In fact, I I did a, a Facebook Live I think two days ago where I I, I addressed that very very issue and. I was also inspired by reading one of your blog posts because I think right now we are up against the wall. And either we can put our judgments aside, even if we hate the other person's opinion, and recognize that it's a person, then we're not going to be able to communicate and we're going to give in to maybe violent conflict with each other. Again, yeah, we don't yeah. need, we don't need to do that. Another area where I see, and we're just starting to come out of it, you certainly were, could have been a victim to this, the, the Reardon syndrome built into the educational systems biases and their criteria for what is, what defines intelligence, Even testing and IQ tests are labels that will separate you're smart, you're stupid. And you were a high school dropout, so therefore you must have some deficiency in your mind and you certainly are not as smart as a Harvard graduate. And yet we know that there are Harvard graduates who are assholes, who are broke, who don't know how to make a living. And you as a high school dropout have not bought into that particular story, but you were affected by it growing up.
1: Sure. In my case, I was just skipping school because yeah. I wasn't challenged with it. Yeah. It's like I was not learning anything there on the streets. I was learning stuff. Yeah. So, I'm. A, I think I'm a great entrepreneur because of the lessons I learned being a dope dealer in middle school. <laughs> right? I learned how to be a good entrepreneur dealing dope at Madison West Senior High School. So um, I learned. And there's a really funny story in the in the new book about I was doing a speech in Panama. And my friend Eric Gamio was there and he had his mother-in-law with him at the speech and his wife. So his wife is a psychiatrist or psychologist. His mother-in-law is his father-in-law. Is. So all three of them are, you know, healthcare, you know, psychological professionals, whatever. So I'm doing the speech. Uh, 90 minute uh, presentation and so eric is there and his mother-in-law and she's loving the speech and i'm just talking about how people act and what motivates people and how we lead people based on the difference between leading you know as opposed to trying to manage people you know you got to manage things you got to lead people you've got to tap into what ins you have to Uh, You know, motivation comes from self. You can inspire them, but they've got to motivate themselves. So how do you create an environment where your people will become motivated? How do you deal with human nature and uh, conflict resolution when you're leading a large team, all of that stuff? So she's loving this speech. So she tells Eric, why didn't you tell me he's a psychologist? and He said... No, he's not a psychologist. And she said, "Yes, he has to be a psychologist. Trust me, I know a psychologist talking when I hear one." And he's like, "No, I'm, I, I promise you, he's not a high, you know, he's not a psychiatrist or a psychologist or anything like that." So she's like, y- "You just don't know. He he's obviously got a, He's probably a PhD because <laughs> this is really really high level stuff." Oh, and man. she was apoplectic when he told her he's he was expelled from high school. So what she didn't know, and, and why I say, you know, I think it's pretty funny the way I presented the book, but basically, uh, you know, I've been in half the crack houses in Liberty City, Overtown, uh, National City, Okay, I know what happens when a drug deal goes bad. I know what happens when you go in a crack house and uh, somebody is eyeing you up to say, is this just some society idiot who's, you know, here in his daddy's T-bird and we're going to knock him off or we're going to rip him off and keep his, you know, take his money and keep the drugs. And, and you know, I was an alcoholic. I was a, uh, a, a drug addict when you're an an addict, you're the, you know, that, see, I could win the Oscar for best actor. I could win it against Brando or Pacino or anybody because when you're an addict, that's, you have to be the greatest actor in the world. You have to be able to lie to people because you need them to cover for you. You need them to lend you money. You need them to fix your things that you screwed up. You know what I mean? So, you develop this street smart sense um, that you can't get anywhere else in, in human behavior. And so I joke in the book that, you know, if you could, if, if you want to know how humans react and you have a choice of listening to uh, 27 double blind research studies conducted by the psychiatry departments at um, you know Stanford and you know Harvard and Yale or whatever or my gut you bet on my gut because you know when you you know I've been shot by a crack dealer okay so I mean I know a little something about the dynamics of danger in a situation like that right I've been shot and left for dead in a pool of blood on the street so when you you learn that you become a, a brilliant analyst of human behavior or you end up in a body bag. So that's, you know, how, uh, again, I, I'm not a psychologist or a psychiatrist. And again, I don't mean to say that to demean those people because they're brilliant people, a lot of them. And there's brilliant insights from them. And I've studied Maslow and some of those people like that, of course, because even though I was expelled from high school, I'm a, a you know, a self taught person now. And I try to learn, uh, you know, about many, many things. Um, but that's the, uh, <laughs> you know, that was the dynamic there is you, you know, you, when you're in those kind of scenarios, I was, you become a brilliant, a judge of human character and human nature and what causes people to do the things they do.
0: Absolutely. You just really drove home for me. I just got, I always loved the line, but you gave me new clarity about it from Bob Dylan. To live outside the law, you must be honest. <laughs> It's yeah. a fascinating line. It really is. It is. I mean, you know, and uh, and you also said before you could win an Academy Award against certain, you certainly could win against Brando. He's dead. <laughs> <laughs> but but I wonder, it's interesting. You said you've got to learn, you know, really how to, to lie well. And I was teaching a class the other night online, uh, an improv class with actors. We mm-hmm. were going over the fact that a lot of people who are not actors think of acting as pretending and as lying. It's actually the opposite. It's the ability to show up in a character as, as
1: that character, right?
0: But yeah, but as by, by being completely transparent and basically naked yourself, a uh, Sidney Lumet accurately said about Pacino, the secret of his greatness on film, he's not capable of a false moment. He can't play a false moment.
1: He really can't. I mean, I just, I always go back to that. I think it was Send of the Woman, is the name of the oh movie, my where he was God. the blind guy. Yeah. It's just, when he just reaches for the tumbler of whiskey or whatever it is on the table, you're, you're just kind of afraid he's going to knock it off the table. When he's in that car, I think it was Ferrari or whatever it was. I mean, you're just petrified that this blind guy is driving the car. And, and yet, you know, you've seen 25 other movies with Al Pacino and Dog Day Afternoon and everything. So you should that should not happen. For him to be able to do that, I, I would agree with it. I mean, he's just not – I mean, when he gets in a character – and, I you know, I'm probably using language that offends you or – No, 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 or, no. Or, not Even no. if it doesn't offend you, no. mean it it, it. it trips something. You say no, it's not lying. But I think we're both saying the same thing yeah. because I think yeah. when you are that, you know, that addict, you have to get you. You're so into that character of which is usually victimhood. Yes,
0: you know, yes, you, yes. You,
1: you know, the electric company is turning off your light, and the landlord is throwing you out, and you've got to convince this person that you borrowed money from 27 times before and never paid it back once in 27 times. And you have to convince them the 28th time to still lend you money. Right. Yes. Or You know, you got somebody who, and you know, I mean, it's, you know, Scarface was obviously a movie since we're talking about Pacino, but you know, Scarface is also, you know, obviously a movie and a dramatization. But there's the scene in South Beach where he's going there, and there's the the hippie chick on the bed who looks dazed, but underneath the blanket she's got the rifle. Okay, that shit really happens in crack houses. Okay, I, I'm in, I've been in those situations, and you know, like I say, you you learn how to make judgment about human behavior, or you you end up in a body bag.
0: Yeah, yeah, really. By the way, Pacino. uh, A lot of people who don't go to theater don't realize that his love is the theater, and that's where he develops and hones his craft. I've seen him on stage countless times. Mm
1: -hmm. I
0: saw him in a production of American Buffalo in New York four times. And
1: have you you seen his his new? uh, I think it's HBO or Amazon series, The Hunters one. Have you seen? I
0: actually couldn't get through the first episode.
1: I. I haven't, um, I haven't seen it yet because it, it, it's, it's not appealing to me. So that's why I asked.
0: I started watching it and I found it. It was, it was over the top. I really, am going. Story wise, I'm going. Are, are you serious? I, I, and you know, a great actor can't save a bad script. I mean, I've seen things with with De Niro that I just no. I can't watch this. I mean, it's just mm-hmm. that bad. But but he on stage, this man is share a story with you. He did this play in New York called it was by Bertolt Brecht, The Resistible Rise of Arturo Ui. Mm-hmm. Now, Brecht wrote that it was a symbolic thing because Arturo Ui is really Hitler. Because Brecht was mm-hmm. German, etc. Okay. But it's totally fictionalized story. And he was in the show with a whole cast of amazing film actors who all wanted to be on stage with him. Mm-hmm. Randy, he had a scene. He's a street guy. He's vulgar. He's crude. And he hires this man, played by the late Tony Randall, oh. to teach him how to speak and to be articulate, etc. And we're going to watch him go from being like the peon to being the king. And the guy who was in the throne, so to speak, was uh, Charles Durning. He was sitting in this beautiful leather chair in the center of the stage. Mm -hmm. Pacino was doing his piece, circling the chair. And I'm noticing that whenever he would come near the leather, he would kind of stroke it. And I'm going, he's physicalizing the transition. He's taking over. And it's all in his body. Uh-huh. It's just amazing. I mean, anyway, you're getting me off on yeah, <laughs> the, the joys of acting. Um, so, this, we kind of covered this, but I want to really focus on it. Do you believe that we teach people how to treat us.
1: Absolutely. There's just nothing to talk about there. Yes, absolutely, 100%.
0: Well, I think when you open your book, you know, Why You're Dumb, Sick, and Broke, uh, how to become uh, smart, healthy, and rich with a, your story about being shot. And then you say, but I was asking for it. I, I basically attracted it. it. I you, manifested it. So if you manifested it, then you were a participant in that. You were teaching people, unfortunately, to kill you in this situation.
1: Yeah, that's true. Absolutely.
0: Now, why do you think it's so hard for people to accept this as a reality?
1: Because then you have to give up being a victim. Yeah. If you say... Well, I'm contributing. I have this thing I hate. And if I say, well, you know, the the million dollar question is always, well, are you doing anything to contribute to this thing that you say that you hate? Because that's where the breakthroughs live. That's where you say, well, yeah, actually, I am sending out signals to people to say, I'm a doormat, you should treat me like a doormat, right? Um, who the hell wants to admit to that, right? Right. right. We, we want to be a victim because if you're a victim, you're noble, people feel sorry for you, you get empathy, you get attention, um, maybe you can sue somebody and get rich, you know what I mean? There's There's always a payoff. Right. so until you're willing why people have such a hard time seeing that is because they're not willing to give up the payoff like for me I was a professional victim for the first 30 years of my life and I hung around with a bunch of other professional victims and we'd get together and this guy would talk about how his landlord is evicting him and this guy would talk about how the power company cut off the power and all the meat spoiled and the ice cream melted in the refrigerator and you know, then you feel like, "Damn, I need a manifest a tumor or a <laughs> meteorite landing on my car or something because these these guys got better tragedies than I do, uh, and you you, conscious, <laughs> you subconsciously try to manufacture a, a better uh, tragedy, because you're losing your status as the number one
0: victim. That is powerful stuff and i th- i wish people would think about this guys in terms of whenever you point to external circumstances for being for struggling for being broke that if you can admit that you're a participant in it then you could get out of being broke would you agree
1: that's the first step if you don't do that you can't take any of the other steps
0: yeah exactly
1: the the Exploiter and the exploited are co-creators in ignorance, in decadence, in victimhood, whatever we want to call it.
0: Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's 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 brutal, and this is all what I would call the Hank Reardon syndrome: accepting the stuff that makes you less than you are. Now, on that note. How, how Did you see that in the book, Anne Rand is taking on the major myths of all of Western civilization in Atlas Shrugged?
1: Yeah, I mean, she's well, because the issues she's addressing, like the entitlement memes, these are really just mind viruses or memes. The entitlement meme, the rich people are evil, these are such timeless, universal themes. We can see them in in Joseph Campbell's mythology. We can see them in the Bible. We can see them in Puccini operas. We can see them in the Beverly Hillbillies and MASH and Dallas and Dynasty and superhero flicks from Marvel right now. And, you know, they're, they're timeless memes that have infected millions and millions of people for thousands of years.
0: And and again, what's sad about it is that people will defend that belief that's actually hurting them. It's just wow, it's mind-boggling. Now, I found there's that- an
1: there's an ant. I I shared a story in the book, the next book. See, I shouldn't be, you know, you're supposed to be pitching your last book, telling everything, you know, so everybody be buying that. So I'm keep telling these stories of this book that isn't out yet that <laughs> nobody can buy, <laughs> but. I actually found a a medical journal, a story about an ant that gets infected with a virus that causes it to, the virus grows like a a, a, a pod inside the body. It's a symbiotic kind of, uh, uh, you know, in the body. It causes the ant to climb up a tree and bite on a twig. And when the ant bites on the twig, His head explodes, and this it's actually a fungus that takes over his body. And then this fungus rains out from his blown-up head and onto the ant colony below and infects all these other zombie ants who then repeat the process. And that's how this fungus uh, keeps recreating itself. And that's what a mind virus does. That's what a meme is, is it, it parasitizes the host and causes the host to keep reinfecting other people. So wow. whether you, you know, somebody plays the baby shark theme as you're getting in an elevator or they're humming it, now you've got that earworm in your head and now you're humming it out in the department store and now the next person gets it. It's, it's you know, or it's just Nike, you know, just do it is a meme and uh, Barack Obama, yes, we can is a meme. And baby shark song, theme song is a meme. And they replicate, the, they, they parasitize the host and cause it to replicate the virus. And so that's what hap- When you decide you're not worthy, that you're a victim, you are, you, again, you, you've given yourself a lobotomy because you've taken certain brain cells and lock them up so that you you cannot process information that is not in accord with the belief that you have.
0: Fabulous. Have you seen the film Parasite?
1: No, I've, uh, I don't know, I watched about 10 minutes of it and it was, it looked to me like, you know what, there's a lot of really negative programming about wealthy people, looks like
0: there is and
1: I, turn, I turned it off <laughs> there
0: is what's brilliant about it is that if you really understand what he's doing they're the wealthy in that they're portrayed as parasitical, but so are the the people who are supposedly being taken advantage of so it's it's it goes back and forth mm-hmm. it's not just there and and it's just the way he Visually what he did with it. Uh, but I agree. Yeah, there is definitely that in that. Um, but what I discovered, what I loved in, in, in Atlas Shrugged, where she's taking on Western civilization in chapter three, part two, a chapter called White Blackmail. On page four thirty one of the centennial uh, edition. He wants Hank wants to divorce his wife and she says she was she won't leave him. And she says, I want you to look at me and to learn the fate of the man who tried to build a tower to the sky, or the man who wanted to reach the sun on wings made of wax, or you, the man who wanted to hold himself as perfect. She's going to torture him with that. And so, just, the,
1: the two, just so
0: evil. <laughs> it is. It is so evil. But, so evil. But the two interesting images: the man who tried to build a tower to the sky, yeah, referring to the Tower of Babel, and who tried to fly too close to the sun, Icarus. Mm-hmm. I think I want. Do you want to talk a bit about them and shed some light on how they apply to the people who are listening to this show?
1: Yeah, You know, we could probably write a dissertation for a PhD on that, but if we wanted to really boil it down to its essence, it's this. Society loves to build people up on pedestals And then once they do, they love to tear them down because by tearing them down, it uh, assuages their own worthiness issues.
0: Oh, yeah. It's got beautifully put. Now, I found it interesting when I looked a little more closely at the story of the Tower of Babel. Do you know the name of the man who built that tower? No. Okay. You ready for this? Nimrod. So, that was in the Bible, but today, a Nimrod is like a jerk, an idiot. Yeah, yeah,
1: an idiot.
0: And we have, he is a babbling idiot. Yeah, yeah. So, you want to talk about projecting a really negative image, and Icarus flying too close to the sun... Have you read Seth Godin's book, The Icarus Deception? Yeah. It's it's perfect because he says, whenever you want to express your greatness, you're going to have to come up against that fear that you're flying too high. And society has told you when you do that, you're going to end up...
1: In Australia, they call that the tall poppy syndrome.
0: Yes, yes. I love that.
1: Yeah, and the whole... The the premise being, hey, that taller the flower, the more like, that's the, the tallest flowers are the first ones that are going to get chopped off. So just keep your head below the cubicle and stay in your life of quiet desperation until Friday when you get your paycheck and you can go home and call Pizza Hut and binge Netflix and not think about your... Miserable life of quiet desperation until Monday morning at six a m when the alarm clock goes off again.
0: I have that c d that you did on that. <laughs> I love it. It's like stand up comedy, but it's true,
1: yeah, yeah,
0: so how is all of this relevant today during the pandemic
1: <sighs> the you know we're gonna you referred to one of the blog posts i wrote about it it's, it's it's really easy now to fall into victimhood i look at the united states you know i look at we've got some really bad actors in the world so Iran china um, korea north korea probably russia probably um, did criminal malfeasance with this ep- epidemic you know, they hide it, they hid it, they lied about the numbers, they didn't tell other countries the truth, and people are dying as a result of that. And then you have governments like the United States, Spain, Italy, where it wasn't criminal negligence, it was just incompetence. They were the governments were incompetent and not prepared to protect their people. And so you can look at all that and you just see all i mean literally every day you could see something that is happening you know yesterday they, you know so one governor said well we ordered these masks but they sent the wrong mask and we asked for these ventilators and they didn't come and we they told us the testing would be this but it's the wrong test and we they promised there'd be 27 million tests there's only been one million tests and you could just look at this stuff every day and just be a victim and "Oh my God, no one, you know, they're killing me. But at some point you have to say, I, I can be a victim or I can be a victor, but I've got to choose one. Mm-hmm. And if I don't want to be a victim, I just can't sit and anger, rage tweet all day about all the stupid injustice because of the dumb decisions my government has made I need to take care of my own life. I need to protect my own family. I need to protect my own business. I need to create my own prosperity. Uh, And I've got to do everything I can to keep as much as I can to control my destiny under my control and not allow other people to turn me into a victim.
0: I love it. And and I'm starting to see, I mean, what I'm experiencing as a really positive thing is that it's putting us right against the wall to make a choice and we really should be relying much more on our own gut and our own inner voice rather than looking at all of the media that's bombarding you with contradictory information about what's going on and decide to be calm in the face of that. And when you do that, it's scary to do, but you will come into, I think, a better sense of who you are and you'll be feeling more worthy. Um, It's, wow. You know, the title of the book is Atlas Shrugged. How does Atlas shrug in the book? Well,
1: I think the real... Uh, analogy she's looking for is, of course, Atlas was the guy holding up the world, and at some point, your arms are so tired you just can't keep holding up the world. And in she depicted it as the the people who add value to society could not continue to keep um, providing it to all the entitlement people who, because it it, it got out of scale, right. I'm I'm a wealthy person now. I used to be a very poor person. As a result, I believe I have a lot of empathy for people who are in the situation I used to be in. So I do a lot of charitable works, time, money, resources, all of that stuff. Um, and I think enlightened wealthy people do that. I think enlightened even not wealthy people do that. Um, but you can get overwhelmed because there's some, just like we have systematic racism and systematic other issues in our society. We have this systematic, uh, uh, culture of entitlement where there's, Mm -hmm. so there's at some point we say, because it's, you know, it's so easy. We just got to tax the rich people more. There's so much money. These rich people are so rich. If we just increase the taxes on the rich, then there's enough for everybody. Um, but again, don't count other people's money. You know, like literally one month ago, the predominant political meme in the United States was Amazon is an evil, greedy, mean corporation. They make billions of dollars and they don't pay any income taxes. Now, why is that? Because Jeff Bezos, who's probably the single most brilliant entrepreneur on the planet Earth today, has looked at all of the tax breaks on investing in technology, and future, and building factories, and buying drones, and buying airplane fleets, and stocking warehouses, and creating robots to handle the warehouses, and all kind of technology, all these tax breaks, so that he could create the single most efficient distribution network the world has ever seen. And he was public enemy number one, for because Bernie Sanders, and AOC, and Uh, All the Democrats in the primary were talking about Amazon and not paying any taxes. Now, here we are four weeks later, and the entire country is dependent on Amazon (laughs) to get toilet paper, towels, cleaning products, food, the essentials they need for life. The most, not the most, but... One of the superheroes out there right now is the Amazon delivery drivers Mm. who are, are out there in this virus, risking their life to deliver all of these products from Amazon because Amazon is the only place you can get a lot of them because those other companies that we thought were so nice and good citizens Four weeks ago, they don't have the technology, they don't have the inventory, they don't have the capital, they don't have the logistics mm-hmm. to handle this, right? So there's, you know, but it's so easy to fall into the entitlement thing uh, and be the victim. And it's something um, you got to realize, okay, yes, I want to, you know, the, you know, I always go back to, you know, Reverend Ike, you know, the best thing you can do for poor people is not be one of them.
0: Like, yeah, yeah.
1: you you want to help somebody, you know, become wealthier, become healthier, become stronger, become smarter, become wiser. Um, that's the message we have to get a- across to people. Not, hey, we need to take more money from or more resources from the people who have it. Now, I get. I- I'm totally on board that there's a unfair distribution of wealth. I get there's a systemic. Um, uh, bias in the system that favors old bald white guys I get that I don't deny it for a minute Um, so I'm all for creating opportunities investing in education investing in the youth and in personal charity and support and things that I can do that every public seminar I do now I offer scholarships and I'm you know, looking for, I'm working on a platform now to teach entrepreneurship for inner city youth. Um, I I get all that. And so I, you know, and and so I can look at somebody like Andrew Yang and this idea of a universal basic income, which two years ago, I would have thought was just a crazy communist idea. And look at that and say, you know what, Uh, this is actually an idea that we need to look at, that Maybe it's the answer, maybe it's not, but it's time to have a conversation about it because the income distribution is so out of touch, right? The, the education, you know, like me, I, you know, of course I didn't go to Harvard or Yale. I never had a shot at any of that. I had a single mother who raised three kids knocking on doors selling Avon. There was no way in the world I was ever going to have a shot at those kind of universities, uh, there's system, systemic bias in the system. They weren't looking for people like me. Um, I get that, but the answer isn't to say, "Okay, all college is free, all healthcare is free, all prescriptions are free, all Disney Plus and Netflix are free, um, all M and M's are free," and we just need to tax the rich people more. That ain't going to work either. No, there's something. There's somewhere in the middle we got to come up with.
0: And it actually the again, the like like the the victim who actually defends his victimhood is actually being cheated with that it's it's actually condescending, you know, to to those people basically saying we recognize your helplessness and yes. now we're gonna do something that's gonna relieve you What we're doing is saying, now you have, you can relax and be helpless for the rest of your life. Right.
1: The thing we've got to do a better job of distributing equally is knowledge and wisdom.
0: Yes, absolutely. Are there any final words that you would love to uh, leave our? God, you've you've dropped so many value bombs here today already.
1: Well, I would kind of sum it up to say, you know, most people can sniff the cheese from a mile away, but they have a hard time seeing the mousetrap.
0: <laughs> that is great. How can people get in touch with you? And what would you like to promote right now that you're doing an initiative or uh, maybe even talk about your book, by the way? By the way, in, in the book, Guys, uh, the central mystery question is who is John Galt? But I think we're going to... That's the Ayn Rand book, not my book. That's right. The Ayn Rand book, Atlas Shrugged. And our John Galt today is Randy Gage.
1: Yes, and they can find me at randygage.com. And Twitter, that's the best place to see. And just my, you know, for what I'm doing, what I'm about, uh, check out the blog. That'll be, you know, you, you'll know what I'm doing if you look at the blog. And then I also have a podcast, comes out a couple times a week, called the Power Prosperity Podcast.
0: Okay. You want to talk about the title of your upcoming book or no?
1: Uh, it's, it's you know, it's Radical Rebirth, oh, but yeah. it, it's not going to be out for a while. So, you know. Don't worry about it.
0: <laughs> but Mad Genius and Risky is the New Safe are definitely wonderful books. And they're more recent ones.
1: Yeah, yes. Thank you.
0: Thank. You. Listen, thank you, man. Thank you so much for your sitting here. We're sitting in each other's apartments sharing this. I mean, it's um, and, and thank you for shining the light that you do in the world, man, because you really, really do.
1: Thanks. I'm pedaling as fast as I can.
0: (laughs) I think you remember I told you, you inspired me the very, very first time I saw you speak. I didn't know who you were. And you jumped onto that stage with energy. And another thing I don't think I mentioned was you were the only one of those presenters at that big event who didn't use Multimedia for your presentation. You didn't use PowerPoint.
1: Right, never you, do. <laughs> no,
0: you just came up, and you said, "Here I am. This is what I have to say," and it was so much more engaging and real than a lot of the PowerPoint stuff that we saw.
1: My my belief is that PowerPoint is for people who have no power and no point.
0: <laughs> That's excellent. <laughs> Thank you again.
1: All right, Lewis. Great to be on with you, everybody listening. Thanks. Uh, wishing you all peace.
0: And I will send you the file as soon as I have it up.
1: All right, perfect.
0: Oh, do you have a new photo that you want me to use perhaps on the... Uh... Yes.
1: Uh, if you just go to and look under meeting planners, so there's a link for photos. You can pick any one you want.
0: Okay, good.